Hello and welcome to Vital Views, podcast for UNLV School of Nursing. I'm Joe Gascione, Communications Director for the School of Nursing. August 30th is National Grief Awareness Day. It's an annual recognition of the grieving process and the many different ways people can cope or heal, which is far easier said than done. To talk about how powerful grief's impact can be and the techniques to help process it, we are joined remotely by Dr. Paul Thomas Clements. He's a professor in residence at UNLV Nursing, a forensic psychiatric clinical specialist, and an expert on areas like grief, bullying, and workplace violence. We're talking about National Grief Awareness Day. We're talking about raising awareness for the grieving process. Is there a right or wrong way to grieve? Actually, that's a very good question. Is uh, A lot of people tend to think that they may be grieving in the wrong way. Uh, and what I'd rather reframe that is that people should either think of it as grieving adaptively or maladaptively. And the difference between that is, is that grief is a process that is going to be painful for many, and it is going to be long uh, distance running, if you will, for that period of time, but it's how we go about it. When we are looking at adaptive grief, these are the people who are able to acknowledge that it is going to hurt and that they are going to miss the person that uh, is gone and that they're going to have to learn to live one day at a time uh, without that. That person, but that over time that they're able to reinvest into daily living. Uh, with maladaptive grief, which we also sometimes call complicated grief, this is where the grief becomes so profound uh, that the way that people cope uh, is actually just the opposite. Instead of building uh, support structures with family, friends, co-workers, or other things, is that they turn to other situations such as self-medicating with alcohol uh, or with substances which can be either street drugs but also can be over-the-counter or can also be prescribed medications. Uh, One of the things that really confound a lot of people is that there is no pill that is going to make grief go away. There is no pill or using alcohol that's going to ever make you really forget what happened. Uh, the goal of good grief is is not to forget the person who died. It's to actually remember them and to put it into their life history. One of the topics when we talk about grief, and you and I have talked about this on another occasion, is acknowledging the grief. And you said that was possibly the most critical aspect of that process, whether you're grieving or you know someone that's grieving. Can you elaborate a little more on what that means? Sure. Um, So in order to move forward with uh, a loss, we have to acknowledge what the loss is. And actually, we need to understand not only who it was or what it was that we lost, but the implications that it's going to have for our daily lives. And so by realizing that uh, the loss has occurred, then we can start to figure out how we need to reframe our lives uh, in order to get back into living a daily life. Work doesn't stop. Family doesn't stop. School doesn't stop uh, when someone uh, loses somebody. And when we think about it from uh, others and support systems, acknowledging the loss is also very important. Joe, grief is something that death are still things that are talked about in shadows and with 
stereotype and stigma is a lot of times people don't know what to say, and so they either say nothing out of fear that they may say the wrong thing, uh, or they do say what survivors uh, and family members think are the wrong things, such as placations or sort of patronizing things, such as he's in a better place now, or we never get more that we can bear, those types of things, is that even though these be beliefs that people have is when they hear that kind of thing, it often feels as though uh, it's being brushed aside. Some of the best things that we can do when we acknowledge grief is to just let people know that we are there for them and that we really can't understand what they're going through, but that we're there to listen if they ever feel like they need to talk to us. When we talk about ways to console someone to help them heal, and you mentioned placating terms, I see a lot, and I'm sure a lot of people would agree, you see thoughts and prayers, that phrase uh, continuously in the news, on social media. I would like to believe that in most cases, there is some type of genuine attempt to try and be nice, to try and be respectful. For people that are trying to connect, what are some better ways to to discuss that with people that are in grief? And, and that's a very, very important topic when you're trying to help somebody who is grieving. And uh, actually, I'm going to uh, share something that a recently grieving person shared with me when they were tired of people saying, you have my thoughts and prayers, as they said, first you think about me, and then you pray for me, but then you need to do something to help me. And I just thought, how powerful is that? Is is that it's really about that doing, that operationalization. And in the end, it can be a win-win situation for everybody. Is a lot of times well-intentioned people who don't know what to say or don't know what to do will say, "You're in my thoughts and prayers." And what that basically often is heard by the the surviving family members is is that you're uncomfortable and you don't know what to say and you don't really intend to do anything to help me. One of the things that I encourage family members who are grieving to do is if anybody says, is there anything I can do to help? Let's make it something concrete, uh, such as uh, I'm just so exhausted. Could you make dinner for my family on Friday night? Since their father died, my kids are having a hard time getting to soccer practice because I'm just too exhausted or I have to work or I'm dealing with other things. Could you take the the boys to soccer practice on Tuesday and Thursday this week? This gives everybody something measurable and concrete to do. Uh, Not only does it help the people who really want to help and don't know what to say or do to grab onto something that they can measurably do, and it also does take some of the responsibility and burden during that time of grief from the grieving family members. The person I referred to earlier, she she referred uh, back to that comment, and she said, thoughts and prayers don't make dinner on Tuesday night. And I thought, absolutely so powerful. So ask somebody who wants to share their thoughts and prayers. If there's anything they say they want to do to help, then make sure that you give them something measurable to do. This also leads me to something else that is a common pitfall uh, over the many years that I've worked is when people say, if you need anything, call me. I think that we need to be very mindful that if we make a statement like that, we need to be prepared to do that if the person calls. Grief is not on a timetable, and sometimes it's at 3 o'clock in the morning when you're falling apart, and you remember that friend who says, if you need me, call me. 
So if they call at three o'clock in the morning, we have to be willing and able to at least listen uh, when they call because we did make that offer. Uh, Otherwise, if they call and we sort of poo-poo them or don't respond or don't answer, it just sort of sends a message that uh, it was just words, once again, not actions. Now, this year you started co-hosting virtual grief sessions with a local nonprofit here in Southern Nevada. They're called Adam's Place. They help families. They help grieving families and grieving children. For these virtual sessions, now that you're now we're going into eight months of these sessions, they do it once a month. What have been your impressions overall? Well, my impressions as one of the the um, support staff is that people are extremely engaged and that they feel as though this is a safe place to share uh, from the commentary that we have gotten from the uh, participants is very similarly reflective is that the one thing about virtual groups is that even though it is quote unquote in person, in other words, people are live and they're all there at the same synchronous time, there is a somewhat subtle form of anonymity that also comes with anything virtual. In other words, is that if somebody really feels like they're going to fall apart or they feel like that they need a breather, they can turn their camera off. They can sort of control if and when they're going to participate. Many times is just listening to others is some of the most powerful things that early participants find is that if it's their first or second time, they just listen. And so they're there, but they also have sort of that that safe boundary of being in their own home or their own safe place in case the emotions get too overwhelming. Believe it or not, one of the very first things that we still see in grief groups is people apologizing when they cry. Uh, And it's very interesting because that you would expect to be a normal reaction, and yet society still sort of seems to set up this unconscious standard of is please don't cry, please don't cry, you know, it'll upset me if you're upset. Uh, Even in person, uh, when we see somebody crying, we often see somebody go up and give them a hug and say, don't cry, it'll be okay. But actually crying can be a very cleansing and healing thing. And so what I would say that I see in this group virtually as I've seen in live groups is that as people become more comfortable with the group dynamic and the setting and now with the virtual platform, as time goes on, they do allow their emotions uh, to to show on their TV screen and also learning to live with silence in the virtual arena is that we don't always have to fill in the words when somebody cries and sometimes we can all just be quiet together with them on camera. Also, there's really nothing that we have not been able to do online uh, and virtually that we haven't been able to do in person except anything that involves touch, obviously, such as holding hands. But in the COVID era, that's something that most people uh, would not necessarily want to do anyway. But we show educational videos. Uh, There are many of uh, these wonderful videos uh, online now that address various topics. We currently have somebody coming in that is going to run an entire session on mindfulness. So we're going to be actually teaching yoga techniques and meditation and breathing techniques uh, for the upcoming group, which can all be done virtually, and people can do that sitting in the comfort of their own chair or standing in in front of their computer screen. We also do, I do mindfulness closeout every month is I have a uh, mindfulness bowl that I chime and I walk them through 
mindfulness with their eyes closed, their feet planted on the floor. And of course, I keep my eyes open to get a barometer of how the group is doing this. And everybody participates 100%. It's such a joy to literally, as we end the group, and we've talked about some stressful topics, I spend eight to 10 minutes with the ringing bowl and walking people through, shrugging shoulders, rolling their neck around, breathing to the bowl, listening to the chime. And you can actually see the stress sort of melting off their bodies and off their face. So the virtual platform, and especially in light of COVID, has become a wonderful, safe place, both psychologically, but also physiologically, so that there's no transmission of disease or anything like that. And for the participant who's in a virtual grief session, they can do it from the comfort of their own home. So there's no added pressure of having to leave their room, to leave their house, to go somewhere and physically be with people they probably don't know. And you feel almost like you're you're in an environment where you're forced to speak. But at least that virtual option gives you that privacy and that moment where if you need to step away, you just turn off your camera or turn off your mic and you can actually just walk away. Exactly. And if you want to even go one step further than that, it avoids having having to drive home <laughs> after being so affectively charged is that you come to a grief group. And I used to experience this when uh, I ran live grief groups for many years, is that people really were excited to come, but then they would come and they would let out a lot of emotion and feeling and whatever they were exhausted <laughs> about thinking about having to drive home. And so the nice thing about the virtual group is, is it's sort of a self-contained thing is it's easy to access. You don't have to get into a car and drive. You don't have to drive home. I mean, wouldn't it be great if you could uh, do that with going to the gym? I think a lot more of us would be in better health if we could do it all virtually. (laughs) Right. (laughs) For sure. I want to go back to Adam's place for a second. We mentioned that they specialize in helping children and families coping with loss. We talk about children specifically. When they express their grief, it can be formidable to understand because obviously they can't show it as an average adult, what I would say. But that doesn't mean it's any less emotional and we shouldn't underestimate what a child's feeling and how they show it, correct? Absolutely. Uh, The general rule to think about with children is the younger they are, the less verbal repertoire or less words that they have. But words are only a manifestation of what they're feeling. It doesn't mean that if they don't have the words that they're not feeling it. So if I haven't learned the word anxious because I'm only five years old, that doesn't mean that I don't have that affective state of anxiety. Actually, our our limbic systems, the thing that controls our emotions and responses and filters out environments is with us from the time were born. And so otherwise, I mean, that's why children laugh and cry and and they're afraid from noises is that it's a protective mechanism. So with children, what we have to remember is, is that the younger they are, the less they're going to be able to tell us in words or in a social context. So they're going to show us in behaviors. So what we're going to see with children is either the onset of new behaviors that weren't there that are problematic, such as temper tantrums, crying, being afraid to go to sleep, or we're going to see a regression in older children, for example, is if they're seven or eight years old and they've never had a problem sleeping or eating or anything like that. 
we're going to see a regression to earlier times. And this can be everything from sleep to um, eating to younger children, again, who may have been traumatized by a loss as they start to now pee the bed again or they um, start to not use the bathroom on a regular basis. So what we what we really are looking for is, is behaviors that are on time and are there any changes in that. And even for older children who do have verbal repertoires, um, we still may see a, um, a behavioral regression. Is It's always important to remember that what children can express in words, they will express in behaviors. And this is often with very young children, how we know if they have been traumatized by a, a death or a loss, depending especially on the nature is of the loss, whether it was a natural death or whether it was a suicide or whether it was a homicide, we start to see behavioral changes in children. The three big things I would also say that um, are very noteworthy in children, but I want to put in parentheses, but this happens to adults too, but especially with children, since that's the question we're on, is the three major signs that I have seen over my career that tend to tell me that children have been traumatized, especially um, including by loss, you start to see a sleep disturbance, a dietary disturbance, or you start to see um, uh, behavioral uh, like anger disturbances. So you either have children who are eating way too much now, or they're not eating enough or at all. They're either sleeping too much, such as avoiding things, or they are not sleeping at all, or they're having nightmares and night terrors. And then with the behavioral things is that they become extremely isolated or they become extremely aggressive. So we call this a biphasic response. Energy, your psychic energy can only go one of two ways. You're either going to externalize anxiety or those types of issues, or you're going to internalize them. Uh, And it's sort of a natural coping mechanism. And so if you think back to what I just described, that's exactly what we see. Externalizing would be eating too much, sleeping too much, or becoming too aggressive, and internalizing would be avoidance, not eating, and not sleeping. When we talk about, to tie this back into nursing as we're kind of wrapping up here, what are your expert tips for nursing students when you're trying to teach them how to deal with grieving patients, grieving families? What are the main points they should remember? So the first is acknowledging the loss. If if you know that somebody lost somebody, regardless of the method that it occurred, the mode that it occurred, again, natural death, suicidal death, homicide death, uh, somebody that was killed by a drunk driver, is we need to put a name to it. Obviously, most people, most nurses will immediately say, I'm sorry for your loss. But we want to make sure that we give it a name such as, I'm sorry that you your son uh, has died or that your son was killed in this accident is that families are looking to us is that if we're afraid to to acknowledge how somebody died and maybe the horrible nature of how they did die, especially when you get into violent crimes, is it sort of sends a uh, an unconscious message of is, well, you're uncomfortable with me talking about this. So in all honesty, grief is no different than talking to somebody about their diabetes or talking to them about having cancer to talking to them about their blood pressure is that grief is a it is an emotional and physiological state number two is don't be afraid to validate that this must be hard for any family is that we don't want to say I understand or I've been there those 
those or those placating types of things. What I recommend is making an affirmative statement such as, this must be very difficult for you, or I can imagine how hard this is for you. This leaves an open end for them to express themselves. And what we have to remember is the response is going to be different from different families. Is if I say this must be very difficult for you, I may have a family that bursts into tears and says thank you for saying that to a family who curses me out and says, yeah, well, you have no idea how hard this is for us. And it's your it's your fault, the hospital's fault that we're here, that this happened. In any case, it's better that they verbalize, regardless of what mode it is in, sadness, relief, anger, then we don't talk about it at all. The third thing I want to say to all nurses that may be listening to this is that nurses cover a wide variety of age and experience and culture and ethnicity that we all bring with us. So we all see death through different lenses, and we have to be mindful of how does loss affect us, is that for some people, as nurses, we may have been nurses for 25 years, and we've seen a lot of death. And so we have to be careful that we don't become callous to what families are going through. Conversely, on the other side, uh, as I've worked with younger nurses over the years as a both a professor and a clinical instructor, but also in the field as a, as a therapist, we have nurses who've never seen anybody die. And so they really not only are dealing with trying to comfort the family, but that they are struggling with touching and seeing their first dead body, which may be a patient, but it's still somebody who has died. I recently had a nurse. We have had the uh, wonderful experience of having some leadership nurses from our program at UNLV School of Nursing come with me to Adams Place. And when we do the debrief, Um, afterward, but also the preparation before, but mostly I see this in the debrief afterward, is one of the most common statements across all the students. uh, And this is not just nursing students, but we've had social work interns over at Adams Place and and other interns. They're always afraid they're going to say the wrong thing, upset the family, and possibly do some damage. (laughs) And actually, just the fact that they're mindful of that it is unlikely that they ever would do something like that, but we're going to make mistakes. Sometimes we say the wrong thing, and it it happens. But I think the wrong thing is to say nothing, is when any of our families have experienced a loss, that somebody is gone and they can never come back. I think it is part of our job as nurses to acknowledge that, number one. Number two, I'll close with this part about this, is it is also part of the nurse's role to facilitate a good death or integration of a death for families, is that it is just as important that we pay therapeutic attention to the birth of a new baby and all the joy and everything that comes with it to bring that baby into the world is on the other end of that spectrum is that we want to make sure that that the person who dies to the best of our ability that we're able to help those families integrate that into a good place in their life eventually and a lot of times that may start even right at the emergency room is that maybe where it occurred is that making sure that we help the family get connected. Is there anybody we can call? Is there anything uh, 
a, a glass of cold water can go a long way. Anything that, that shows that there's that human connection of us, not just as professional nurses, but as people. Well, thank you, Dr. Clements. I appreciate you talking to us all the way from the East Coast. Uh, we will have information for Adam's Place in this episode when it launches, uh, just so people can see what it's all about. And if they want to register for these virtual sessions, they can do so. And they have other services. I would encourage them to go to the website if we can list that as they have a lot of other services besides our monthly grief group uh, and for children as well. But it is a wonderful nonprofit agency that is very well established in the Las Vegas area. So I would encourage people to use them to help them in their grief process. 